right. Today's talk is Imagination in Service to Truth, Literature as a Mode of Apologetics. And so today, I'm going to talk about specifically the role of the imagination in apologetic argument. And as part of that, I'm going to talk about literature as a mode by which imagination can work in cooperation with reason. And specifically, the, the idea of this is that we want imagination to work in cooperation with reason to help people to be able to consider and grasp and act on the truth that they hear. Um, in last night's plenary session, we heard um, about the marvelous story of an atheist who came to the faith through apologetic argument. And Dr. Moreland challenged us, in a sense, to say, well, why doesn't that happen more often? And there are a number of reasons why that's so. And I think that the missing piece of imagination in apologetic argument is perhaps one of those reasons. And I hope in this talk to just introduce a few thoughts about how it is that we might be able to be more effective in our apologetic argument in bringing people to a saving knowledge of Christ through the use of the imagination and through using imaginative literature. That's the plan. But before I do that, I want to tell you two stories. The first story is that of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is the most famous, uh, the most influential popular apologetic, of the apologetic um, arguer of the 20th century. And I would say as we go into the 21st century, we see his influence and his reputation only continue to grow, and rightly so. Um, we recognize him as a man who robustly defended the truth of Christianity on rational grounds. His book, Mere Christianity, and other books such as Miracles, um, defends Christian Christianity as being a rational faith. But he was not always a Christian. He came to the faith as an adult, and imagination played a critical role in him coming to faith and also in his later writing. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis notes that as a young man, he was profoundly influenced by reading the novel Fantasties by the Christian author George MacDonald. Fantasties is a fairy tale. It's a story that does not mention Christ or the church or the Bible anywhere in its pages. But it is deeply imbued with what Lewis called the bright shadow of joy, joy beyond the material world. And so when he read this book, something happened to Lewis that he didn't fully appreciate at the time, but later looking back, he says, by reading this book, Fantasties, quote, my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me, not unnaturally, took longer. So literature really played an important role for Lewis in preparing his conversion to theism, to belief in the one God who is the source of all good. But Lewis did not become a Christian in one step. He accepted the reality of God first, became a theist, but he then struggled 
with coming to Christianity. Literature also played a critical role in that step of conversion, the second conversion, the most significant one, from theism to a robust Orthodox Christian faith. By 1931, Lewis had come to belief in God, but he found himself unable to accept the claims of Christianity. His difficulty was not intellectual. His letters to his friend Arthur Greaves show that he had a clear understanding of the Christian doctrines of salvation and the atonement. In one letter, Lewis says specifically, quote, what has been holding me back has not been so much a difficulty in believing as a difficulty in knowing, knowing what the doctrine meant. You can't believe a thing while you're ignorant what the thing is. It's important to recognize that what Lewis was struggling with was not facts or concepts, but meaning, with grasping the fullness of the idea. And this difficulty with meaning is precisely what his friends Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien helped him with one day in 1931 as he walked with them through the grounds of Magdalen College in Oxford. Lewis later wrote, now what Dyson and Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. Again, that the idea of the dying and reviving God, Balder, Adonis, Bacchus, similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except the Gospels. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. When Lewis realized, thanks to the conversation with his Christian friends, Dyson and Tolkien, that he could connect his imaginative response to story to the factual reality of the Christian claim about the crucifixion and the resurrection, the final barrier to belief fell. He could become a Christian as a whole person with both his imagination and his reason fully engaged. Shortly after he made this connection, Lewis accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And as we all know, he went on to do powerful work for the kingdom. My second story is about myself. Like Lewis, I am an adult convert to the faith. Before my conversion, I was an atheist and a hostile one. <laughs> yeah. I quite agreed with the new atheists that Christianity was not only false, but stupid, irrational, and harmful. Now, philosophical and historical apologetics eventually played a tremendously important role in my conversion, and specifically the work of scholars such as J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, N.T. Wright. I would not have been able to accept Christ if I had not become intellectually convinced with the use of my reason that Christianity is indeed a rational faith, that it is true, and that the resurrection is a fact of history. But when I was so firmly an atheist, 
I would not have listened to the arguments that ultimately convinced me. I found the very idea of faith to be repellent, repulsive, idiotic. I would not have listened to any arguments. I was just not interested. But I did read literature and poetry. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on fantasy novels. So I'd been reading The Lord of the Rings <laughs> and The Chronicles of Narnia. And as C.S. Lewis noted, a young atheist really can't be too careful of his reading <laughs> or hers. Um, and so although those things didn't explicitly connect with me, uh, well, there was something going on there. And I began um, in 2005 to teach college literature, which meant that I was going back and rereading um, classic poetry. Now, classic poetry, the canon, is full of orthodox Christianity. You, you can't avoid it, right? And so when I was reading this poetry for my classes that I was teaching, I was reading poetry that was deeply Christian. And I believe firmly that the Holy Spirit was working on me slowly through my imagination. And the tipping point came when I read um, a poem by John Donne. Uh, John Donne is a uh, 17th century poet, one of the metaphysical poets. Um, specifically the sonnet, um, Batter My Heart Through Person God. Now, as I read this poem, intellectually, I was thinking, I don't believe what Dunn believes. In fact, I think what he believes is nonsense. <clears throat> On the other hand, I had to recognize that Dunn was no fool. Okay, so, <laughs> but, but I wasn't letting those things come together. Anyway, uh, but I, th I was setting that aside as saying, okay, I don't believe what Dunn believes, but his poetry's beautiful. And as I read it and reread it, I found especially opening lines of that poem moving me deeply in a way that I quite simply did not understand. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. There was something there that I was experiencing against my own reason, because I thought that Christianity was nonsense, but I, what I was getting in the poem was the, <clears throat> was the imaginative experience of a relationship with the living God. And when I got that imaginative experience, that glimpse of a relationship with the living God, Longing, <clears throat> longing awoke in me. Now, I wouldn't have said at that point that I certainly did not have faith, and I didn't want faith, thank you very much. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but, thin end of the wedge here, for the first time, I thought I would like to know something more about this thing called faith because maybe it was something richer, deeper, and more interesting than I had always assumed. Now, 
There were a lot of questions that I still needed to ask and have answered before I could accept Christ, but imagination opened the door. As George MacDonald's novel Fantasties baptized Lewis's imagination, John Donne's sonnet baptized mine. But also like Lewis, I had a two-step conversion. I came to belief in God, but then I struggled with the idea of the incarnation. I had been reading all of these weighty tomes by Habermas and Wright about the resurrection, and you know, I knew it really happened. All the information, all the evidence pointed to the resurrection and the, the crucifixion and the incarnation as historical facts, but I found that I was unable to accept the idea of Jesus as God incarnate. I understood the concept, but I couldn't grasp it, even though the whole argument was extremely convincing. So at that point, I turned very deliberately to the Chronicles of Narnia. And I very deliberately began rereading them because I knew what I needed and I went looking for it. I went looking for Aslan, the lion who is the great Christ figure of the Chronicles. I reread The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I reread The Horse and His Boy, both of which particularly prominently feature Aslan. And through my experience of these stories, my imagination was able to connect with what my reason already knew. And I was able to grasp as a whole person that it could be true, that God could become incarnate, that he could become flesh and walk among us. And that imaginative experience removed the last stumbling block for my acceptance of Christ. So these two stories, I hope, have illustrated a little bit that the imagination can in fact play an important role in apologetics and that it is complementary to apologetics based on argument. But I want to make a larger claim. I will argue that imagination is critically important today in our current apologetic endeavor. First, conversion involves the whole person it involves more than just the mind. It involves the heart and, most importantly, the will. Any one of those pieces by itself is not the whole person. Only emotions or only intellect, that's not the whole person. Apologetics strives to remove obstacles to faith so that a person can respond to God's call. Now, sometimes those obstacles are conceptual or factual. Sometimes those obstacles are obstacles of the will. But sometimes, sometimes those obstacles are the walls that exist between different parts of the human person, between the walls, between the different parts of the self. And so the gospel call is heard only in the mind or only in the heart, but not in the whole self. When the imagination and reason are paired in apologetics work, we can tear down many more strongholds than with either reason or imagination alone. Second, each culture and each time period has its own besetting sins, its own weaknesses, its own loves. I believe that imaginative apologetics, including literature, but also film, music, art, and drama, 
is critically important for our present culture. We live in what is essentially a post-Christian age. Non-believers today know that Christianity is an option. There are churches in every town, Bibles in every bookstore, web pages just to click away. In the Western world, it's not a question of access. All too often, people think they know who Jesus is, and they don't want him. Now, sometimes they think they know who Jesus is, and they hate everything to do with him. Now, this kind of hatred is not that of reasoned disagreement. Because no matter how you address the specific flaws in that kind of argument, the hostility remains. Other people think they know who Jesus is, and they don't care. They think Christianity is best an interesting option on the spiritual menu. Or they think it's boring, passe. This is an incredible challenge for apologetics. Because frankly, apathy is a lot more difficult to struggle with than anger. The reality in our post-Christian Western culture is that many people just are not listening the way that we hope they're listening when we share the gospel. Before people will listen, they need a desire for what Christianity offers. Before people can make connections and have truth make a difference in their lives, they need to believe and understand that the concepts being discussed have meaning. And they need to grasp that meaning and connect with it so that the truth can shape their lives. This is where imagination can play a critical role in apologetics, and in particular, where imaginative literature can be a mode of apologetic work. So it behooves us now to to stop for a moment and say, well, what exactly is imagination, and how does it function in apologetics? Malcolm Geit, a British scholar and poet, and the author of Faith, Hope, and Poetry, Theology and the Poetic Imagination, which is a brilliant book, by the way, and if you're interested in imaginative apologetics, you need to get this book. It's, it's just brilliant. Um, Geit describes the imagination as an active, shaping power of perception, exercised both individually and collectively, and a faculty which is capable of both apprehending and embodying truth. Like reason, its twin faculty, our fallen imagination, is shadowed in finite. But like reason, it is also under God's grace, illuminating and redemptive. Imagination informs reason and is in turn informed by it. So I hope we can see already that by imagination, I'm not talking about wishful thinking um, or daydreaming. Imagination is a vital human faculty, part of, part of bearing the image of God. Um, I don't have time to go into that, but it's, but it's part of who we are. And one of the terrible after effects of the Enlightenment fact-value split is that reason has become scientism, um, and imagination has become wishful thinking. But in fact, imagination, the God-given faculty of imagination, is a mode by which we apprehend truth. 
And by truth, let me be clear, I mean objective truth, right? The real thing. So with that in mind, um, imagination um, has a number of functions that are, are relevant to apologetics. Um, first, it enables the communication of meaning. It enables the process by which objective truth is both communicated and fully grasped by the listener or the reader. Second, it is a way, in fact, the way, in which creativity is expressed. Since we are made in the image and likeness of a creator, the divine artist, the ultimate author, the use of the imagination to create literature and to respond to it actually connects us at a deep level with God who made us in his image, even if we don't actually know that that's what's happening. Third, it enables an incarnational and participatory mode of knowing that is complementary to rational understanding. Not opposed to, but complementary to. And fourth and finally, imagination can help to awaken longing for God. It can prepare the way for truth to be heard and acted on. When people recognize that they have a longing, they seek to satisfy it. And when they eventually discover that no earthly thing actually really does the job, they have the recognition of this unfulfilled and unfulfillable longing. And then they are potentially, at least, ready to hear the Christian message. Now, what we're going to do in the, the remainder of our time together is to look very briefly at just two of these, awakening longing and creating meaning. Um, so first, looking at longing, um, just fairly briefly, as apologists, we can answer questions, but what will lead people to ask the questions? We can explain truth, but what will stir up a hunger for the truth? Now, the argument that C.S. Lewis articulates so well, the argument from unfulfilled desire is a powerful one. If there is nothing in this world that satisfies the desire in me, the likelihood is that I was made for another world. It's a powerful and convincing argument, but it only works if a person feels that unfulfilled desire. <sighs> Christian apologists need to awaken that longing from its slumber because too often people today are numb. They are drugged by materialist philosophy, by consumerism, by the gratification of every physical lust. This produces a kind of spiritual and aesthetic coma. So we need to wake people up to make them unsatisfied, to waken a desire in them. And then we can speak to the fulfillment of that desire. Now, imagination can serve us well here because how can we desire that which we cannot imagine? Literature can help to show the beauty of Christ, to give a glimpse, just a glimpse into the kingdom, just enough maybe to awaken curiosity or some longing for that peace which passes all understanding. So as one small example from the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last battle, <clears throat> closing volume, we have a beautiful description of Aslan as the, the great lion, as an image of Christ. 
The earth trembled. The sweet air grew suddenly sweeter. A brightness flashed behind them. All turned. Tyrion, the last king of Narnia, turned last because he was afraid. There stood his heart's desire, huge and real, the golden lion, Aslan himself. And already the others were kneeling in a circle around his forepaws and burying their hands and faces in his mane as he stooped with his great head to touch them with his tongue. Here we have a literary image of Christ as the great lion. This image is at once both awe-inspiring, the lion, what a powerful image, and gloriously approachable. All the power and glory of the lion image, the king of the beasts, combined with the tender solicitude of a cat-licking kitten. The desire to caress his velvety paws and his shaggy mane of this great and powerful beast combined with the knowledge that one can do so in utter security. This is a tremendously attractive image and one that awakens longing. Could there be a real person who combines that awe and power and that love and tenderness and approachability in one? Could there be such a person? Could there possibly be? Someone who feels a longing for something more like that is much more likely to actually listen to an argument that says, yes, not only could there be such a person, but there is. Let me tell you how we can know this is true. So that's just a little glimpse of how, and there's, there's a lot more I could talk about, but that's a little glimpse of the role of imagination as awakening longing and bringing people to the table ready to listen. Now, what happens when you actually are starting to have that discussion? Imagination still plays a vital role. Imagination plays an essential role in argument by enabling the communication of meaning. Now, to actually understand the meaning of a word or concept is to grasp what is significant or important about it. A word that conveys meaning for a Christian apologist may, for the skeptical listener, be nothing but a phonetic shell without content. And we may not even know that when we're having the conversation. The word has meaning for us, but is it just a sound? Is it, does it actually have any meaning for our listeners? Logical arguments and objective truth can make an impact only if the listener finds the terms and the ideas meaningful. Now, I want to emphasize that this is true whether or not the listener agrees with the claim. Someone can find the term meaningful and still disagree, but the key is, does this term actually have content? Is there some substance there, or is it just a word? In an increasingly post-Christian and religiously illiterate culture, all too often, the language of apologetics may not communicate what we think or hope that it does. 
Michael Ward, uh, who's another cutting edge scholar in imaginative apologetics, um, Michael Ward sums up the problem for apologetics very nicely in his essay, The Good Serves the Better and Both the Best, C.S. Lewis on Imagination and Reason in Apologetics. And that essay is found in Imaginative Apologetics, which is in your, uh, your handout packet, as is the, uh, the citation for Faith, Hope, and Poetry. Um, the two, I would say the two most important books for imaginative apologetics right now. So in this essay, Ward writes, quote, it is no good arguing for God or Christ or for the atonement or even for truth until the apologist has shown, at least on some basic level, that these terms have real meaning. Otherwise, they will just be counters in an intellectual game, leaving most readers cold. Likewise, apologetic arguments for the authority of the church or the Bible or experience or reason itself must all be imaginatively realized before they can begin to make traction on the reader's reason, let alone on the reader's will. That, I think, is the clearest statement of both the problem and one potential mode of solution of communication in apologetics today. Even a word like resurrection just might not hold the same meaning for both participants in the conversation. And if so, our arguments that we've so well prepared for can become pointless without us even realizing it. All these convincing arguments, all these data for the historical evidence for the resurrection could remain simply interesting points for the skeptic. As Ward puts it, counters in an intellectual game. If the word resurrection remains nothing more than an abstraction, an idea about something that might have happened, rather than the particular details of an event that actually physically happened to the dead body of a particular man named Jesus of Nazareth on a particular day in history. And I think we see this also in some of the struggles that we have with the liberalizing and quote-unquote demythologizing elements in, um, within the Christian church. Because as soon as something becomes departicularized, as soon as it becomes abstract, then it's very easy to drift it away from being tied to the historical objective particular claims of Orthodox Christianity. So I think that this necessity for the imaginative realization of the meaning of a term is vitally important um, for combating this, this sort of Gnostic and abstracting and spiritualizing of the particular historic claim of Christianity, as well as communicating with just complete skeptics. So... This is where Ward's claim is so critically important, that apologetic arguments must be imaginatively realized before they can begin to make traction on the reader's reason, let alone on the reader's will. So how can imagination help to establish meaning? There are a number of ways of which I do not have time to talk to you about all of them. Um, but one of the ways that it can do that is through literature, 
through stories and poetry, um, which can help the skeptic to imaginatively realize the meaning of the words that Christians use. Now, it's true, and we have to be aware, that stories and poetry, like any other use of language, can be used to convey true things, false things, and things that are a mix of both. Our imagination, like our reason, is fallen and can be used to corrupt ends. But as J.R.R. Tolkien put it in his essay on fairy stories, of what thing is that not true? Um, so we have to think, okay, how can we use literature, how can we use storytelling to actually convey truth? I would argue that, in fact, the Christian is on, we're on our own turf here. This is our territory because literature, being using literature, using stories and language to imaginatively show forth and, and help people create meaning is particularly well-suited to Christians. Malcolm Guy writes in Faith, Hope, and Poetry that Christian theology depends both on written scriptures and also on the radical idea that the word behind all words and scriptures has been made not more words, but flesh. Poetry may be especially fitted as a medium for helping us apprehend something of the mystery embodied in that phrase, the word was made flesh. We're on our home ground here. Literature always operates on the level of the concrete, not the abstract. A story or a poem particularizes an idea. It gives it form in specific images, in a specific reading experience. Thus, literature can be said, in a sense, to be incarnational. The imagination bodies forth an idea into a particular story or image. And when it does that, the meaning that's conveyed in the image and the story is no longer reducible to simply a propositional statement. It is not less than a propositional statement, it is more than. And this is the case of our Lord in the incarnation. He does not lose the fullness of God in becoming man, but now we can approach him, we can experience him, we can encounter him, he can be touched and, and spoken to and heard and seen, physically present, still incarnate, even now at the right hand of God. The incarnational element means there's always a mystery. We cannot, we cannot reduce who Christ is to an idea, because he is the incarnate son of God. He is never reducible to a simple idea, no matter what liberal theologians might try to tell us. Right? And so using words, which were given to us by God, um, using words, in a sense, embodies those ideas into imaginatively realized creations where we can experience and encounter them in a rich, full way. This incarnational element 
is essential in the, in the realization and creation of meaning for the ideas that we seek to share. So let me give you an example. If we say God loves us all and will forgive us our sins if we repent and turn to him is a propositional statement with words that may or may not have any actual meaning for the skeptic. I can speak to this from experience. The words God, forgive, and repent are abstractions to those who have not yet experienced the reality. How can those abstract words be imaginatively realized? How do you move from abstract idea to grasping the reality? Now, our Lord shows us one way that it can be done. He tells the parable of the prodigal son. In this parable, we have a wonderful, rich context of story in which the ideas can take on the fullness of meaning. Now, this story would be a wonderful piece of imaginative literature, even if it were not also an expression of the most amazing and life-changing truth about God's love for us. The, but when we read this or hear this parable, the imaginative connection that we feel between ourselves and the prodigal son comes from the organic reality of the story the rebellion and downward spiral of the sun, the moments of clarity when he hits bottom among the pigs, the emotions he feels on returning, and that wonderful image of the father running to meet him. After we hear or read this parable, we know something. We know something more about what repentance and divine love actually mean in a way that cannot be reproduced by analytical arguments but that can then provide the basis for further rational discussion. If the skeptic can invest words like repentance and divine love with the meaning that they gain from this parable, the conversation that that skeptic will have with an apologist will be very different and will be very much more fruitful. So C.S. Lewis knew that there was a need for both reason and imagination in the presentation of the gospel, especially to people who thought they already knew what Christianity was all about and didn't want anything to do with it. As Lewis wrote, quote, why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or about the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appeal in their real potency, could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. Because each person is different, each culture is different, each time period is different, we are called to express the same truth in different ways. In particular, in this post-Christian culture, I believe that we are especially called to express biblical truth in ways that will be available to the skeptic for the making of meaning. The marvelous thing is that God has so made us that we can continue to create imaginative literature to body forth meaning in words. 
And even as we create imaginative literature and respond to it, we are giving glory to God who made us in his image. God is the creator, the ultimate artist and author. As J.R. Tolkien put it, we are sub-creators. As he says, we make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made. And not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. Both reason and imagination are modes of communicating and encountering truth. Imaginative apologetics seeks to harness the God-given faculty of imagination to work in cooperation with reason, to open a way for the work of the Holy Spirit to guide the will toward a commitment to Christ. And literature provides a mode of apologetic endeavor that connects reason and imagination with the potential for reaching more people and more deeply including many who are very resistant to hearing the gospel. We are faced with many challenges today as we seek to share the reason for the hope that is within us to a world that desperately needs it. Let us use all the means at our disposal to share the good news of God in Christ. Thank you. Do we have time for any questions, or do I have to like let people go? Yes. Question. Yes. Okay. Couple questions. Yes. Question. Um, I, I really agree with and really enjoyed this workshop. Um, I've always thought that evidentiary apologetics is good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. But but a part of me, as a pastor, knowing most of the college students here are engineering majors and such, and I always make fun of them, but people aren't reading anymore. And so I think people who feel what you what you describe, the, 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 they end up going for film, uh-huh. because they'll watch film. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about the different mode uh, of, of, of film versus written word, literature, and so forth? Right. Um, so the question is, since in this somewhat post-literate age, more people... <laughs> I'm an English professor. I quietly weep. Um, but in this, in this age, is perhaps film more of an appropriate mode? Um, so that's kind of a two-part answer. One is, um, yes, I really believe that all the arts are valid modes of apologetics. And that includes film, dance, um, music arts, painting, the visual arts, yes, okay? Um, But I'm not myself a visual artist, so I I don't speak to those directly because I can't speak as directly to them. Um, But, yeah, I think it's called a tautology, yeah. Anyway, um, but I actually do think that literature, and this isn't just professional bias, I think that literature has a special place in imaginative apologetics because Christ is the word made flesh. So words are special. Words are important. And the Bible's written, written words. This is important, right? God didn't have to do it that way, but he did, right? We should pay attention, okay? So, um, and everywhere that Christian missionaries have gone, they've brought literacy with them. So I actually think that this is a profound challenge for Christians to really engage with the promotion of literacy 
because it enables so many things that are wonderful things to happen. But I also would strike a note of encouragement. I mean, I'm usually pretty darn pessimistic about this sort of thing, um, but if you look at the, the advent of things like the Kindle, and you know what, people do read a lot of stuff on Facebook, right? <laughs> no, seriously. Um, now, the quality of it, who knows? Um, but people do, right? So I actually think that social media is an important mode for increasing literacy. Um, because a lot of people, if you click share some interesting article, you know, people will actually read it who might not otherwise. They're blogging was nothing, I mean, people are engaging with the written word in ways that I think would have been inconceivable 10 years ago. And look at the success of, you know, the young adult literature, um, you know, Harry Potter and Twilight. Now, I, I'll go on record as saying I think Harry Potter is, is good, worthwhile literature. There can be differences of opinion in that. Twilight makes me want to just cry in a corner. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, and, I read, and I read them all so that I could say that in good authority. <laughs> yeah. But that said, but that said, people are reading them. Yes. There's a desire. So I think there is actually some hope there, and we should work to encourage that. Okay, I, long qu- question over here. Yes? Um, so I really, I really like your discussion today, but I got a question in terms of, so you say literature can be used for, uh, for, as a means to say truths and falsities, so... You know, we can realize and understand these claims better, propositions better. But I have a problem in, like, how would you, what if somebody were to have read an imaginative uh, reading mm-hmm. about or, origins, origins uh, theology of non-exclusivity, you know, like, to everybody's coming back and everyone's going to be saved. You'd have this different longing and different desire that, oh, wow, God is this different... Mm-hmm. Being that it's not exclusive, and I would right. I would see the problem in like, oh shoot, this person, that person who read that book would have a longing and desire to not be exclusive anymore, and like yeah. So let me let me sort of restate. I want to restate this for the for the audio. Um, what about literature that evokes longing for something that actually isn't true, right, or that is is not the case? And I think this is a very real situation, but one in which I think we need to have confidence that truth is actually true and that God made us to turn to him, and that no, nothing less than him will ultimately satisfy. So I think that if something, some story that awakens a desire that's distorted or off kilter, that desire at least is reaching for something, is not inwardly just satisfied. The satisfied soul might as well already be in hell, right? So if there's a longing, then at least we can speak to that and say, well, you get a part of it. Now let's see if we can correct it and redirect it. Um, and I think that's the role of, of, of the literary apologist, um, to, to be able to find the stories that do speak to truth and direct that longing. But I think insofar as any longing is actually imaginatively realized, even if it's a false longing, like there are, the girls who read Twilight are longing for a boyfriend whose skin sparkles in the sunshine. <laughs> but, but they're longing for love. And they maybe have a distorted, oh, I don't even want to go there, really distorted idea about what that love looks like. 
but they have a desire for love, and we can say, well, let me redirect. <laughs> and that's where I think we would need to do that. I think I have to let you go. Now, thank you so much. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.